Well, good morning, ladies, and welcome to Every Woman's Grace and our ongoing study in the book of Acts. And as Paul Twist reminded us, it's the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. So today we'll be looking at the fifth chapter of Acts, and I think the outline is on the screen, or should be, and if not, it's in the back of your lesson. And we will... From there. This is new. This is something new. (laughs) It's the old dog learning new tricks. (laughs) Well, this morning, the very first sentence of a story or book can be extremely powerful and forever memorable. It's the hook that grabs us and it sets the tone for all that is to follow. If you're like me, you may not remember much about Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. But who could forget the opening line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. But there is no book that opens more powerfully or more memorably than God's book. The story begins in Genesis 1 with these jaw-dropping words, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the very beginning, God, the creator king, had a kingdom plan. Remember our definition of the kingdom? God's people living in God's place under God's rule, and as a result, they enjoy God's blessings. Man was created by God in the image of God for the glory of God, and God placed man into relationship with himself. As God's representative, man was Positioned and given the task to multiply, to rule, and to subdue the earth, and to obey and worship the one true God. Oh, it was the best of times. But sadly, everything took a dramatic turn for the worse. We know the story all too well. The father of lies, the deceiver, Satan, appears and pulls out from his arsenal his greatest weapon, doubt. And suddenly, it's the worst of times. Everything changed. The sin of Adam and Eve brought devastating consequences. And we're still feeling the results of that today. They were driven from the presence of God. The curse of God's judgment brought spiritual, relational, and physical suffering and death to to his image bearers. Adam's sin affected not only mankind, but all of creation has been subjected to the futility by the decree of God. What began in chapter 1 and 2 with God's blessings ends in chapter 3 with God's curses and penalties. But wait, that's not the end of the story, is it? God has not, was not surprised by the fall of man and defeated by that fall. His kingdom plan could not be thwarted. Human sin was met not only by God's judgment, but also by his mercy and grace. In his great love... God determined to restore his kingdom, reverse the curse, and redeem a people for his glory. The kingdom of God is a theme that runs from the first chapter of the Bible through the last. Throughout all history, from Genesis to Revelation, God is sovereignly and providentially advancing his kingdom plan. In our Every Woman's Grace studies, we have traced God's redemptive story and his kingdom plan through his covenants, his prophecies, and his people. And we marvel at the extent of his patience and are captivated by his providential working 
to faithfully preserve the line through which his promised seed would come. For thousands of years, thousands of years, God prepared the world and his people Israel for the coming of the Savior. And at just the right time, the seed of the woman, the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ, came to earth fulfilling God's promise and preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. But remember our study in Romans 11? We learned that because of Israel's rejection of Messiah, the promised earthly kingdom could not and would not come at Christ's first coming. Again, and another amazing display of divine patience, God continues to give Israel and now the Gentiles opportunity to respond to his mercy and his grace. God, Christ is coming again to establish his kingdom on earth. And in God's appointed time, Israel will believe in the resurrected Jesus. But as we wait, the king now reigns from heaven. And he reigns in the hearts of every true believer who knows and confesses Jesus as Savior and Lord. At the heart of Luke's gospel is Jesus' relentless progress toward the cross. This is the very purpose for which Christ came to earth, and he would not be deterred. The saving of sinners was Christ's whole reason and whole mission. I don't know about you, but our studies in these past few years have been life-changing for me. As I look out across the landscape of this chaotic world today, I am thankful for the comfort and assurance that comes in viewing it through the lens of God's sovereignty and faithfulness and unfailing love. When God is in sharp focus, then life is also undistorted. In these unprecedented times, we can be sure of one thing. God has a plan. And he is sovereignly orchestrating and moving his kingdom plan forward. What seems to be out of control is under his rule. Remember, the world's not falling apart. It's just falling into place. Everything is moving toward an expected end. Everything is moving toward the restoration of God's kingdom. Everything is moving toward Christ coming again as king and establishing his kingdom on earth. Amen? Amen. Well, God is the author of an amazing story. As believers in Christ, by God's grace, we have been written into his redemptive story. He is the author of your story and of my story. Every twist and turn he writes is for our best. And we have to know there's been a lot of twists and turns this year. Every chapter of trial and sorrow is designed to ultimately bring joy and blessing. Every chapter is written by his infinite wisdom for our good and for his glory. So I ask, are you part of his redemptive story? Are you trusting him today as he writes the next chapter in your story? Well, as we have been studying the story of the early church, we have learned a lot about the importance of the transitional book of Acts. We often think of this book as merely an historical record of Paul's missionary journeys, going from place to place, preaching the gospel, and in response, people are being saved. It is that, but it is so much more. 
Acts takes up the narrative where the Gospels leave off and continues the record from Jesus' ministry on earth to his heavenly ministry. Even though Christ has ascended, he's still at work. He has just moved his headquarters. His headquarters are now at the right hand of the Father, and he is at work from the vantage point of heaven itself. So again we ask, how will God advance his kingdom plan? Well, in Acts 1-3, we learn that it gives us kind of a behind-the-scenes look at the time between Christ's resurrection and his ascension. For 40 days, he taught his selected apostles things concerning the kingdom of God. No wonder, they ask, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Well, the kingdom of God that had long been prophesied is now proclaimed in the book of Acts. Listen to how W. Graham Scroge concisely summarizes the book of Acts. Christ is the theme, the church is the means, and the spirit is the power. Christ is the theme, the church is the means, and the spirit is the power. Acts carries us by swift, dramatic descriptions over the early turbulent years of the infant church, And for the first time, the gathering of believers is called the church. This book throbs with life. In it, we see the Holy Spirit at work, forming the church, empowering the church, and expanding her outreach. It is the magnificent record of the sovereign spirit using most unlikely instruments, overcoming the most formidable obstacles, employing most unconventional methods, and achieving most remarkable results. And the unlikely instruments that God uses are ordinary people who were able to do extraordinary things because the Spirit of God was at work in their life. The ministry of the Holy Spirit was not then and is not now a luxury. It is an absolute necessity to ministry. As you remember from last week, Acts 4 ends with a concise summary of the progress of the church. And Luke gives us a similar snapshot at the end of chapter 2. Both summaries emphasize the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the church and in the apostles as they boldly proclaim the gospel of the resurrected Christ. Both emphasize the generosity of the early Christian congregation of believers and financially to that they financially provided for those in need. Sinclair Ferguson reminds us that believing is belonging. And these believers were of one heart and soul, knit together in great unity. The apostles were giving testimony and teaching with great power, and great grace was upon them all. They enjoyed favor from God as well as favor from those outside the church. God used this community of believers and their generous practical love for one another to spread the gospel throughout all Jerusalem. In Acts 4, 36 through 37, we are introduced to a pivotal man in church history and in the book of Acts. His name is Joseph, a Levite from the island of Cyprus. We probably know him best by his nickname, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And he is an excellent example of the generosity described that we saw described in verses 32 through 35. 
He was a spirit-filled man who saw a need and without any fanfare, sold his property and quietly brought the proceeds to the apostles to be distributed as they saw fit. His selfless character and generous heart are the basis of a life of fruitful ministry. We'll come across him later in the book of Acts. If only we could leave on this high point, it was the best of times. But as we come to our study this morning in Acts chapter 5, it opens with the ominous word, but. Against the glorious backdrop of the Jerusalem believers, and especially against the generosity of Barnabas, comes the shocking contrast of a husband and wife. The story turns from compassionate, transparent generosity to dark, deceitful hypocrisy. And here we find the first recorded sinful event in the life of the church, as well as God's judgment on that sin. In verse 1, we are introduced to this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias means God is gracious, but he was soon to learn that God is also holy. Sapphira's name means beautiful, and she may have been beautiful on the outside, but her heart was ugly with sin. And together they put on a lovely front in order to conceal the shabby sin in their lives, sin that cost them their lives. Their sinful deception and pretense begin to unfold in verse 2. Wanting the same honor and affection and respect that Barnabas had received for his generous gift, Ananias and Sapphira's attempt to impress the church with their giving. On the outside, they look just like Barnabas. Like him, they sold a piece of property. But unlike him, they presented a partial sum of the money at the apostles' feet, pretending they were sacrificially giving all of the proceeds to God. Deep in their greedy hearts, it seems, there lingered a love for money and a desire for the praise of the people. So they conspired to keep back a portion of the money for themselves. That word translated keep back is rather interesting. It means to steal, to embezzle. It's the same word that was used in Joshua 7.21 for Achan's theft. His sin of covetousness and disobedience brought God's anger against all the sons of Israel, affecting the power of the entire nation of Israel, and eventually brought God's judgment of death to Achan and his family. Like Achan, Ananias and Sapphira kept back. They embezzled from what they had promised to give. Not only did they lie to God, but they stole from God, robbing him not only of money, but of glory. Their sin was not in keeping some of the money. It was theirs to do as they wished. Their sin was the lying hypocrisy of pretending they had given everything. They wanted to be honored, to be thought of as spiritual and godly and generous. I love in the classical Greek, the word for hypocrite is used to refer to an actor on a stage who masks his real identity and assumes a role who plays a part that isn't the truth about his life. It's putting on a disguise and pretending to be something we are not. Of course, we're not talking about the gap that sometimes we feel between what we are and what we long to be. 
or between what we want to do and what we actually do, but rather it is deliberate deception, trying to make people think that we are more spiritual or more loving than we really are. Tim Challies uh, recently posted an article entitled, Sometimes We All Feel Like Frauds, and can't we all identify with that statement? You see, just because we are committed to Christ doesn't mean we don't struggle with hypocrisy. At times, we're all guilty of putting on a mask and pretending to be something we're not. But the story of Ananias and Sapphira reminds us how much God hates hypocrisy and lying and how dishonoring it is to him. Uh, These past eight months have taught us a lot about hiding behind a mask. They have become a new accessory designed to fit any occasion and coordinate with every outfit. (laughs) Someone has said, we may be struggling with wearing a mask to church, but in fact, we may have been wearing one for years. When one decides to put on a mask and pretend to have it all together, we all suffer. The hypocrite, like Ananias and Sapphira, is filled with pride and covetousness and jealousy and envy and discontent and greed and deceit and lies and, above all, self-glory. The spirit-filled believer, like Barnabas, is humble, content in what God has given, is generous from the heart, speaks truth, and gives God all the glory. So I have to ask, which one are you? We all need to take an honest look at our lives and our hearts. At times, it's hard for us to accept that our behavior and our actions are not caused by what's outside of us, but by what's inside our hearts. John Calvin reminds us the human heart is an idol factory. So do we really think we can hide our idolatrous hearts and self-promoting motives from God? One pastor tells that while he was in seminary, there was a hand-painted sign that hung in front of him at his desk, and every time he looked up from his studies, he was faced with the words, what is your motive? We ought to have that same sign stamped across our minds, what is my motive? Why do I do what I do? Personal integrity was essential to the purity and testimony of the church then, And it's essential to the purity of the church now. Chuck Swindoll says it in a way everyone can understand. Few things are more infectious than a godly lifestyle. The people you rub shoulders with every day need that kind of challenge. Not prudish, not preachy, just crackerjack clean living. Just honest to goodness, bone deep, non-hypocritical integrity. Well, look with me at verse 3. Ananias arrives first on the scene to lay his money at the feet of the apostles. And it seems the Holy Spirit has given Peter the ability to discern what Ananias had done. So with Peter's four heart-piercing questions, the carefully crafted lie and hypocrisy of Ananias is unraveled and exposed. I'm sure he didn't see this coming. He was expecting praise for his generous gift, but instead he was publicly rebuked by Peter. 
Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Clearly, Satan now has moved from persecution outside the church to corruption inside the church. Someone has said said that when God is working in power, Satan is on hand to counterfeit, corrupt, and contend. Most commentators, including Pastor John, feel Ananias and Sapphira were genuine believers. And although Satan cannot occupy the heart of a true believer, he can influence our thinking with lies and distortions of the truth. Satan cannot do our sinning. We are responsible for conceiving sin in our own hearts. When everything is going smoothly, it may be easy for us to forget that we are in a spiritual battle. And the Apostle Paul instructs us in Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This is essential in our daily spiritual battle. For the believer, victory is always available. There is no temptation that is stronger or greater than our spiritual resources. And we will be able to resist, not by our own willpower, but by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. We are living in unprecedented times as the attacks against the church are escalating. And as someone has said, this is not a drill, this is real. Satan's goal is to destroy the church and discredit the name of Jesus. He hasn't changed since the first time we met him in Genesis 3, has he? He is shrewd and cunning and works deceitfully to bring about the downfall of believers. And man hasn't changed. Even though we may be saved, we're still sinners, and we can easily be influenced and tempted. But we also know that God is able to make a stand against the schemes of the devil. And here's some good news. God hasn't changed either. He is eternally the same. He is a righteous and holy God who hates sin. And he will chasten the believer, and he will judge the unbeliever. But he is also a God of grace who offers forgiveness and redemption through faith in his Son, the resurrected Jesus Christ. So as we go back to our text in verse 3 and 4 of Acts 5, Peter accuses Ananias of lying, not to the apostles or to the church, but to the Holy Spirit and to God. Ananias, did you think you could fool the Holy Spirit? Did you think you could conceive this deed in your heart and trick God with your lie? How about us? Have we forgotten that nothing is hidden from God? We may be able to fool some of the people some of the time, but we can't fool God any of the time because the secrets of the heart are not secrets to God. We looked in our lesson at James 1, 14 through 16, where it reminds us that sin is not merely a spontaneous act. It is the result of a process This is exactly what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Their lust for recognition conceived sin in their hearts, and that sin eventually brought physical death. As soon as Ananias heard the last words of Peter, he fell down and breathed his last. Well, it's not over. Three hours later, 
later, Sapphira arrived not knowing what had happened to her husband. And we all ask, why three hours? It doesn't tell us why three hours later. Some have speculated that she was out shopping or getting her hair done, (laughs) preparing for the honor she was about to receive. However, with each question, Peter graciously gave Sapphira an opportunity to tell the truth and to renounce the lie. Isn't God gracious? It's important to remember that a wife's submission to her husband does not include participation in his sin. But, however, Sapphira chose to stick with her story. So she was a knowing and willing participant in the hypocrisy and the blatant cover-up. And, sadly, just like her husband, she was carried out and buried beside him. Remember we studied in our first week together that narratives are not normative? And aren't we thankful that this is not the norm? (laughs) The deaths of Ananias and Sapphira had a profound impact on the church, and it should have a profound effect on us as well. Luke tells us, Great fear came over all the church and over all who heard of these things. My favorite definition of the fear of God is awe mixed with intimacy. God has graciously invited us into the closest possible relationship with himself, but this intimacy must never overshadow the majesty of who God is. Well, like me, you're probably asking, why did God deal so harshly with the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? Well, clearly, their sudden, dramatic death served as a sobering warning and means of bringing purity to his church. In the infancy of the church, God made it very plain that these sins must be removed for the sake of the gospel and for the good of the church. It is as if God laid the bodies of Ananias and Sapphira in the path of every hypocrite who would seek to enter the church. The Lord was designing a church not of perfect people, but a church that was pursuing purity and confronting sin, a church that spoke truth, gospel truth. It was not a place for unbelievers to feel comfortably and to comfortably fit in. The Christian life is not one of easy believism or a carefree lifestyle. So instead of asking, why did they die? We should be wondering, why do we remain alive? The answer is only because of God's grace. God is a God of forgiveness. And the marvel is that God saves hypocrites and liars and sinners like me and like you. If the church is to be an influence and testimony in a morally corrupt and unbelieving world, then it must be serious about purity. We must never forget that we are the church. And our personal integrity is essential to the purity and testimony of the church itself. So did Ananias and Sapphira's sin and God's judgment of death bring down or destroy the church? Did the apostles fold like a house of cards? Absolutely not. Remember, God's kingdom plan can never be thwarted. So it takes us to the next section in verse 12 where we see that even though Satan set out to divide and destroy the church, the church triumphed over his attacks. 
We can rest assured in the words of Christ to the Apostle Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. That promise remains as true today as it did when Christ spoke those words to Peter. Well, look at me with verses 12 through, it, verses 12 through 14. Not only did the church survive, it flourished and grew, and the gospel continued to spread. God gave the apostles power to perform signs and wonders. It was God's way of authenticating both their message and their ministry. It was his way of saying, follow these leaders because I have sent them. Well, God is not limited. He can still perform miracles for his people today if he so chooses. But the need for confirming miracles has passed away. We now have the completed word of God. That's the litmus test. The word of God is the standard against which everything is measured. And speaking of miracles, what greater miracle is there than the transformation of a lost sinner into a child of God by God's grace through faith in the resurrected Jesus? Well, as we come now to verse 17 we see not everyone was happy with the success of the church. It was a threat to some, and it remains so right up until today. The same religious establishment that had opposed the ministry of Jesus and killed him was now openly hostile toward his apostles and wanting to kill them. No one could deny that God was at work in a new way among his ancient people. In verses 17 through 42, Luke records four different responses to God's truth that was, beginning, that was being proclaimed by the apostles. In verses 17 through 28, we see that the council attacked the truth. In 29 through 32, the apostles boldly affirmed the truth. In 33 through 30, the highly respected Gamaliel offered his advice, but ultimately avoided the truth. And of course, we love verses 40 through 42. The church, represented by the apostles, continued to announce the truth. Well, much to their chagrin, the shakedown of Peter and John, attempted by the religious leaders in chapter 4, didn't accomplish anything. In fact, the two apostles are now joined by 10 more. And the evangelistic meetings and the miraculous healings are occurring at the spot, the very spot of their arrest. As we look back with me at verse 17 for just a minute, we see the high priest rose up along with his associates, that's the Sanhedrin, and they were filled with jealousy. They were indignant. They resented any threat to their exclusive role as religious leaders. They were filled with jealousy and envy at the great success of these untrained, uneducated men. And unable to cope, they used force and had the apostles arrested and thrown into jail. Their jealousy was disguised as justice. Perhaps they could intimidate these men and discredit their witness regarding this man. They couldn't even say his name. But God had other plans. We love that. God always comes along with other plans. Locked doors are nothing for a ministering spirit of the Lord. 
And the plans of the temple leaders were undermined when the Lord used a miraculous angelic intervention to set the prisoners free. This was no ordinary jailbreak. Not only were they set free, but they were set free for a purpose. So what did they do after their release? The same thing they were doing before they were arrested. They continued to do what God called them to do. And at daybreak, they went to the temple and spoke to the people the whole message of this life. We too have been set free to proclaim the words of life. Are we faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, when morning came, the council went in and sent for the prisoners. It had to put a smile on your face as you read these verses uh, in this chapter, in verses 21 through 26. Imagine how surprised and bewildered the guards must have been. Oh, the prison doors were securely shut, and the guards are still standing in place, keeping guard, but the prisoners were gone. Verse 24 tells us they were perplexed. I'll bet they were. They were at a loss to comprehend or to explain what had occurred, or for that matter, what would happen next. And they certainly didn't expect to find these men teaching openly in the very place where they had been arrested. They keep going back to that Solomon's portico. What a contrast there is between the apostles and the members of the council. The council was educated, ordained, and approved yet they had no ministry of power. The apostles were ordinary men, laymen, yet God's power was at work in their lives. The council was trying desperately to protect themselves and their dead traditions. The apostles were risking their lives to share the living word of God. The captain and religious officers were motivated by the fear of man. The apostles were motivated by their awe and reverence for God. Even now, God is looking for a few good nobodies, people who know they cannot succeed in serving him in their own strength. Because you see, it is our weakness that is the occasion for God's power. It's interesting that in verses 27 and 28, when the apostles were brought before the council again, the high priest accused them of defying the law and causing trouble. Where have we heard accusations like that recently in in the life of our church? As the trial progressed, it became clear that the apostles became the judges and the council became the accused. We see again another ironic reversal of God. In verse 29, Peter and the apostles declared, We must obey God rather than man. Their convictions had not changed since the last time Peter and John stood before the council. These convictions were grounded in the truth of the Old Testament. In three years of following and being taught by Jesus and being eyewitnesses to his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. They were resolved to follow God's word and obey his command. They were not ashamed of the gospel. They not only knew what they believed, but even more, they knew in whom they believed. Empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit, they stood firmly for the Lord, and he honored their courage and their faith. 
At the end of July, our pastor John and the elders of our church declared, we must obey God rather than men. They too are courageously resolved to follow God's word and obey his command to gather the church together for the teaching of God's word, for corporate worship, for celebration of communion, and for fellowship with one another. God is honoring their courage and faith as the word of God is preached, fellowship is taking place, and the gospel is advancing unhindered throughout the world. And like the apostles, their motive is not one of defiance to the law, but rather obedience to the Lord. As Pastor John reminds us, it's an exciting time to be a Christian. So how strong are our convictions? Are we ashamed of the gospel? Do we know what we believe? And do we know in whom we believe? Will we stand firmly for the Lord if the time should come when we will need to declare, I must obey God rather than men? The apostles hadn't changed their convictions, and neither had they changed their message. And 2,000 years later, the message remains the same. Peter didn't soften the message so as not to offend anyone. The message was simple. We may not want to start our evangelistic outreach like this, but they said, you killed him. God raised him and exalted him. We saw him. And we are witnesses of these things. Only the exalted Jesus is a prince and a savior. Only Jesus leads the way to life and salvation. Only he can rescue us from sin and death and judgment. And only he can lead us to God. Only then can we know him and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So repent and, forg- and receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, a gift that can only be received by faith in Jesus Christ. Steve Lawson reminds us, salvation is not a reward for the, re- for the righteous. It is a gift for the guilty. This wasn't the first time Peter boldly and passionately called the religious leaders and the nation of Israel to repentance. We saw this previously in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 4. But instead of being convicted, the religious leaders were cut to the quick. They were grinding their teeth with fury, so furious that they were ready to kill them just like they killed Jesus. And perhaps they would have if Gamaliel hadn't intervened as the voice of reason to temper their violence. Emilio was a highly respected Pharisee and renowned teacher of the law. And as the presiding elder in the Sanhedrin, he worked closely with the high priest to set the council's agenda. He was the grandson of the revered rabbi Hillel, and he was the teacher of a young Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus. We'll come across him later as Saul becomes Paul. And we all recognize that name, don't we? Well, Gamaliel's worldly wisdom was politically motivated, but God used his wait-and-see counsel to cool the rage of the religious leaders and to save the apostles from death. We find this, say, his sage advice in 39. 
If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Wow, that's as true today as it was then. In verse 40, it states, The council took his advice. Oh, yes, they released the apostles, but not before flogging them and severely beating them, and then again forbidding them to ever speak the name of Jesus. However, given the past history of the apostles, this was rather a foolish and futile command, don't you think? Well, the Sanhedrin may have thought that through their intimidation and coercion and their strong arm of force, they had won a great victory. But the kingdom of God cannot be thwarted or derailed. Rather than a great victory, they suffered a crushing defeat. What seemed like a shameful defeat for the apostles brought results that weren't expected. Still suffering the intense pain from their beatings, what did the apostles do? Do we just love verse 40, where it says they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. The testing of their faith produced endurance. And rather than grumbling, and rather than running defeated, and rather than denying, they were rejoicing. And once again, Luke reminds us that the gospel flourished through the ministry of servanthood and suffering. God doesn't promise there won't be pain in the process of obeying him. Joy is not necessarily the absence of suffering, but rather the presence of God, knowing that his presence is with us, mindful of his goodness and power and faithfulness. I love joy is the settled conviction that he is sovereignly, that he sovereignly controls all the events of this world and all the circumstances of our life to serve his gospel purposes for our good and his glory. As my friend reminds me, joy doesn't always wear a smile. Historically, standing for the faith, for the gospel, has not been without suffering and even martyrdom. So as disciples of the Lord Jesus, are we willing to stand up for the truth? I ask myself in their position, would I have backed down? Well, with courageous determination, the apostles did not back down. Instead, with renewed zeal, they kept right on teaching and preaching the good news of the resurrected Jesus. Every attempt to silence the church only led to a stronger witness for the Lord and a growth in the church. The book of Acts covers a period of about 33 years. J.B. Phillips has pointed out that in no comparable period of human history has any small body of ordinary people so moved the world that their enemies could say with tears of rage in their eyes that these men have turned the world upside down. Wouldn't it be wonderful if it could be said of us that we as a small body of believers, a small body of women, who through the great power of the Holy Spirit, because of the great grace of God poured out in our lives, in great unity for the cause of Christ, that we turned our world upside down in our families, in our neighborhoods, 
in our communities, and in our church. Well, the apostles turned their world upside down through acts of conviction and bravery, and I'm convinced those convictions and bravery were the result of daily decisions they made to follow Christ. Often in our everyday decisions, some of which are big and some of which are small, we have an opportunity to stand up for Christ, and we must not let those opportunities slip by. The story of Acts continues today with you and me and a gospel that needs sharing. We are the next chapter in the rest of the story. And isn't it exciting that God uses the simple lives of ordinary believers to advance his kingdom? He has entrusted us to carry on the mission. And every day is an opportunity to weave the redemptive story into the details of our daily lives. And as we do, we must remember, living lives of personal integrity and purity matters. And we must remember that convictions grounded in the truth of God's word matters. And we must remember that joyously and courageously proclaiming the truth of how God rescues sinners like you and me really matters. Hudson Taylor was a missionary spreading the gospel in China for 51 years. And he calls us to remember that God is not looking for men or women of great faith. He's looking for common, ordinary men and women to trust his great faithfulness. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for the power of your word that speaks truth to our hearts. Thank you for the testimony of the early church that encourages us to live with conviction and faith and to follow you no matter what the cost. Give us wisdom and courage to live gospel-centered lives and opportunities as you have designed for each of us to proclaim the glorious gospel of the resurrected Jesus. Use every one of us for your honor and glory in these very unprecedented days. And may we be faithful to trust your great faithfulness. We worship you and exalt your holy name. Amen.